We are in our series, nearing the end of it, entitled, Men at Work, How the Son of Man Paved the Way for Us to God. And we just have seen the intro, the climax, the beginning of that, that high resolution of the story of the crucifixion, right, as we're entering into that. And we're seeing the, the characters that we all know. If you've ever been in church for any period of time in your life, then you know these characters. Pilate, you know about the crowd, you know about uh, the guy named Barabbas. And as I've been studying this passage this past week and really getting into it, one of the things that has struck me is how each one of these different groups didn't want to take the blame. Have you ever played the blame game? Yeah, I mean, our kids are excellent at it. You know, you ask your child, did you do this? No, she did. <laughs> or no, he did. We do it with our, our spouses too. You know, we do, it with, we do it all the time. Think about it. When you're late to work, do you formulate excuses on who you can blame before you get there? Have you done that before? Have you thought about who else that you can blame so you don't have to take responsibility for your actions? We are experts in our culture at the blame game. Like the woman who, who got burnt by McDonald's coffee after driving it and it spilled all over her. Who did she sue? McDonald's. Not that they forced her to buy the coffee. Not that she was trying to do her makeup and she was trying to drive at the same time. So it was McDonald's fault. We're always looking to blame someone else for the issues and struggles that we have in our life. We blame our parents for, for the reason we're so messed up. We blame our, our spouse for holding us back. Or we blame, blame what happened, our boss for not allowing us to advance. We blame everybody for all of our circumstances in life. But see, we can't play the blame game forever. We have to take responsibility for our actions. And in the story of Jesus, as he is led into this trial, this is his second trial. The first trial was this religious trial that he went into before what is known as the religious teachers, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin. If you're unfamiliar with those terms, that Sanhedrin was this Jewish ruling council of 70 elders and scribes that, that came together and ruled over the Jewish nation. And they didn't like Jesus and they wanted to take him out. And then they bring him before the hated Romans, and that's the civil group. Now he is, we're seeing this civil trial that he has. And each of his trials, the religious trial and the civil trial, all have three parts. And today we're looking at uh, part two of that civil trial and part three. Actually, part one and part three. The Herod part, uh, as we've, the other Gospels have revealed to us, isn't in this text, but we see it from the other Gospel writers. But we all play the blame game. And we're going to see today that if we're going to get out of this blame game, we have to do several different things. We have to understand and take, take responsibility for our part in the game. See, that's the first part here. We're experts in shifting blame. Why? Because our parents were the originators, the originators of the, the blame game. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Do you remember that story? Adam uh, um, is with Eve. Eve takes of the fruit and eats it. God shows up in the garden, and he says, did you eat of the fruit that I told you and commanded you not to eat? What did he respond with? It was the woman you gave me. <laughs> it was, your, really, it's, it's your fault. <laughs> because you gave her to me, so kind of, you know, you're the responsible party here. And then he goes to Eve. Did you eat of the fruit that I commanded you not to? What does she say? The serpent did it. 
He deceived me and I ate. I mean, we're blaming everybody. And it's at the beginning of time. We're always trying to blame other people for our sins, our sicknesses, and the situations in which we find ourselves. But we have to get beyond the blame game and take responsibility. And that means we have to realize the part that we played in the game. If we're going to get beyond this blame game, especially within the crucifixion of Christ, because see, we don't want to take responsibility. We look at it with our Western eyes saying it happened 2,000 years ago. It doesn't involve me. It happened so far away. But the fact is, is it involves each one of us here. Each one of us in this room is in some way responsible for blaming or to take the blame upon ourselves for the crucifixion of Christ. How many of you have ever seen The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie? You ever seen that movie? I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary behind the movie, but in the documentary, Gibson is talking about the scene where Christ gets his hand and the nail driven in. What's amazing about that scene is that you see the Roman soldier's hand take the nail. Most people don't know. That's Gibson's hand. That's Mel Gibson's hand himself. And he wanted to do that part. Why? Because he realized that in some way he was responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. You see, there's this argumentation that's gone on for millennia on who exactly is responsible for Jesus' death. Did you know that? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Who was it exactly? Matter of fact, some groups, religious groups, has, have used the Jews' initiation of this as justification for hurting them and persecuting them now. Did you know that? There are people that persecute Jewish people because they say, oh, you killed Jesus. The fact of the matter is, they all played a part, but all of us played a part. It's not one ethnic group or another. Each one of us, by our sin, is responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. We were all complicit. We're all guilty. We're all to be on trial, to be on the stand. We all have to take responsibility for our actions, and we have to get beyond the blame game. And if we get beyond the bl- in order for us to get beyond the blame game, we have to see that each of the characters involved in the crucifixion or the trial of Christ specifically are representative of each one of us. We can find ourselves in these four players. Now, I want you to keep your Bibles open with me, and we're going to check out these four players. The first player that we see within this is, who's the first person we see? Pilot, Yeah, I like a little call and response. So if you want to be a good student, pay attention. And when I ask you a question, you can respond. But it's Pilate. Now, we don't know. We have some sketchy information about Pilate. What we, many of us know about Pilate is what we've seen in the movies about him. Now, Pilate was a procurator, which was like a governor, but he was, he was appointed to it. So in some ways, it wasn't like he didn't get voted in. He got appointed by the Roman government, by the Caesar, to go and rule this region. And his, his, his responsibility was a lot like a governor. To keep down civil unrest, he controlled the military. He presided, presided, uh, presided as judge over certain instances. But Pilate had done some pretty messed up stuff that got himself in trouble with Rome. Now, anybody that's going to work with a certain people, you need to be familiar with their customs. Right? I don't know if you've ever been to a different culture. You need to learn some of their different cultures. Some of you come from different cultural backgrounds. Did you know, like, in certain cultures that things that are acceptable in our culture aren't acceptable in other cultures? Did you know that? Like, for instance, I've told you I've worked with Russians. When Russians are within the presence of God in church, they all stand. They don't even have seats in the Russian Orthodox churches. Did you know that? They stand for two hours a shot. And every time that the, they say, let's pray, 
in, in a church now in America, they still hold that tradition, so they all stand. They stand for prayer, they stand for the reading of the Word of God. To sit in the presence of God in their mind is unthinkable because you stand in the presence of majesty. But there's other little cultural things that we have to learn. I used to work with some Filipinos, and when I would work, uh, walk into this Filipino Bible study, it was tradition to go around and greet the youngest to the oldest, honoring them last. There are certain things in the culture that we have that are built in. Just like in certain Chinese or Japanese cultures, it's appropriate to burp after the meal. That's not an excuse, kids. You're not in Japan. Okay? But these are some of these cultural things. And Pilate was ignorant of the cultural things that were going on at the time within uh, Jerusalem. So, for instance, one of the things that the Jews hated was imagery. Graven imagery specifically. And the Romans understood, I mean, all of the Pilate's predecessors understood that you didn't bring in the standards or their, their, uh, their flags or their shields with all of the Roman images on it because the Jews would freak out. Pilate didn't care. So he brought in, according to Josephus and Philo, that Pilate brought in all this Roman legion at night, and the Jews woke up in the morning and saw these standards in the holy city, and they freaked out. So freaked out that word spread, all Jews started coming from the surrounding countryside. They started protesting day in and day out. Pilate couldn't handle it. He was so frustrated after five days that he commanded his soldiers to surround the protesters and show their swords as a means of intimidating them so that they would just go into submission. If a show of force, the people will submit. So the soldiers line up that day, get ready to they pull out their swords. You know what the Jews did? fell down, as command, stuck their necks out like this, saying, cut my throat. I would rather die than have these graven images in the holy city. That was strike one in the sight of Rome. Because he's almost causing an insurrection. The The purpose of a governor is to make sure you don't have that kind of problem. And he's initiating that. And then he has another, he has the gall to take money from the temple... And use it to build an aqueduct, a building project. Now, can you imagine that? Imagine your tithes and your offerings that have been given on Sunday morning, and our governor takes that money to use a building project for an interstate. Would you be angry? Oh, the Jewish people were extremely angry. And so was Rome when they found out. That's strike two. So now they bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with this. He's like, oh, man, you Jewish people drive me nuts. I don't want to do this. They, they come bringing Jesus early in the morning. Some scholars believe it was about 5 a.m. How would you like to have that wake-up call? Knocking at your door. By the way, we have a capital crime for you. And Pilate doesn't want to deal with it. So basically, he says, I'm going to wash my hands. I don't want you to do this. He doesn't wash his hands yet. That's coming. But he says, go and judge him by your own law. Because they, he perceived that it was out of, out of jealousy that they came to him, is what the text says. So what did, what did they do? See, these guys were trying to pass the blame. They knew that Jesus was considered to be a folk hero. Some considered him to be the Messiah. They didn't want to take the blame for it, so they wanted Pilate to take blame. Pilate didn't want to take the blame. So he was trying to get Jesus even out of it. To extricate Jesus from the situation. See, Pilate is the judge. That's the, the little sub-point that I, write, I want you to write down under number one. He is the judge. Many of us have to face, we all have to be a judge of Christ in some way, shape, or form. Each of us is confronted with the evidence of who he is. We can't ignore him. 
We can't try to put him under the rug. We can't try to push him off on someone else and say, that's what's good for you, but that's not what's good for me. Each one of us is confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. Every single man, woman, and child, the world over. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your IQ. It doesn't matter of anything of where you came from. Each person, when confronted with the reality of who Jesus Christ is, has to decide for themselves, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? See, Pilate wanted to get rid of it. I don't want to deal with this in my life. And I know many of us are the same way. Why? Because when Jesus comes into your life, there has to be a change. You can't stay in your sin and follow Jesus. It does not work. The Bible says that if you love God, you are to part from iniquity. No one can stay in sin and say that they're loving the Savior. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to struggle with sin. Because we're all going to fall off the horse of discipleship every once in a while. The big issue is when you're staying in the mud after you fall off. See, repentance is, is recognizing you're in the mud, repenting of it, brushing yourself off, and getting right back on the horse. Because Jesus is offering his hand to you. Saying, I f- you fell off. I'm here for you. Here. Come on back. So Pilate is trying to pass the buck. Because he knows that if there's another insurrection, he's going to lose his job. So he doesn't want to deal with this situation. He wants to push it away. So we see we have the judge. Next we have the jealous. Look back at your text in Mark chapter 15. Look at verse number 9. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of jealousy, envy. See, they envied Jesus. Why? Because Jesus spoke as one who had authority. Jesus was the real deal. Jesus wasn't, was uncompromising. He wasn't giving them an attaboy or willing to look around, you know, willing to overlook something. Jesus can, comes into your life and they are jealous of the, 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 all of the honor that he's getting, all of the acclamation that he's getting. They can't take it. So they have to get rid of him. See, there are many of us that are, that are a little jealous too with the acclaim that maybe, maybe a spouse has for Jesus. When it, have you ever seen that? When a spouse comes to know who Jesus is, that other spouse is wondering, hey, wait, what about me? Because now Jesus is getting all this attention. And they're jealous. They're envious. They want that attention for themselves. So they want to get rid of that object of jealousy. And that was Jesus. So we have, we have the judge. We have the jealous Then we have the the jury. That's the crowd. That is the crowd. Let's look back at this crowd. Look at verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Now, let's stop for a moment. What happened just a few days before this? Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey comes on on a donkey and what are they shouting hosanna which means what who knows means lord save now lord save now you know jesus is the mvp he's the goat the greatest player of all time he's it man and then the next moment they're saying crucify him see the crowd's fickle the crowd is fickle we see that in the world all the time one moment the world says this is okay, the next minute the world's saying this, it's changing fashions and fads, and we use that for thoughts and ideas. 
And here, they're doing that. They had turned on Jesus. First they were calling for his coronation. Now they're calling for his condemnation. They wanted to see him be crowned king. Now they're saying that he's a convict and needs to be killed. That's pretty remarkable. Because the jury is, is fickle. The jury goes back and forth. And, and think about this jury. They're willing to trade the, the truth bearer for a traitor terrorist. That's what Barabbas was. You know, some scholars actually in the earliest manuscripts of the book of Matthew, do you know what they say that Barabbas' first name was? Jesus. Jesus was a common name within ancient Israel. It's like Joshua today, Josh. But they're saying that it's, they're trading Jesus, the Holy One, the Christ, the Son of God, and they're willing to trade him for a terrorist, Jesus Barabbas. And the, the name is there for significant sake. Because they're willing to, to give up the Lord of glory for this guy who had a very far fallen different story. I mean, it was an awful, awful thing that they were willing to do. But see, we're like that. We're fickle people. We're subject to all kinds of emotions and situations in which we find ourselves. One moment we say we love Jesus, and the next minute we're out there indulging in the sin that we say that we hate. Are we not? All the time. All the time. We're willing to trade Jesus to get what we want right now. We're willing to trade Jesus for that temporary moment of gratification, fame, acceptance, lack of persecution. We're willing to do that. So within this trial, that's what we have going on. We've got the judge, we've got the jealous, we've got the jury, and then we've got the jokers. I want us to look at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. They called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they began to put it on him, and they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus became a joke to them. They're, instead of saying, Hail Caesar, that's what the common expression was of a Roman soldier, they're putting it as a parody. It's a joke. It's a punchline. It's a one-liner. Hail King Jesus. See, there, for many people, Jesus is a joke. Jesus is a joke. In our world today, when people see that if you're following Jesus, he's a joke. How could you be following him, that outdated guy? But see, Jesus is no joke. Jesus, this was, this was God's will to crush him. The book of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, says it was the will of God to crush him. I think about this, how we even make Jesus a joke in our own lives. See, when we're denying him by our lifestyle, we say to our coworkers or to our family or to our friends that we are Christ followers, and then we go out and they see us doing all kinds of sin and living in sin, in their mind, Jesus is a joke. We can't take you seriously. Why? Because you were the big H. What's the big H? You're a hypocrite. Here's a joke. See, we have to see that our lives are some of the only Bibles that people ever read. And does our life reflect our relationship with Jesus? We each have to, each have to ask ourselves that question. I mean, we all have to judge for ourselves. We can't, we can't be jealous of him. 
and we can't influence the jury. Because see, the jury, what they try to do is slant the story. Have you ever talked to someone that you wanted to be empathetic toward your position? Did you know that's what they're doing in this passage? Look back at the text. Look at verse chapter uh, 15, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, it's early morning, the chief priest held the consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. So they had declared that Jesus was guilty. Do you remember what Jesus was guilty of? Blasphemy. In Jewish law, that was a capital crime. But now they're going from the religious court into the civil court. And blasphemy doesn't play within the, the, the civil court. They could care less. Pilate could care less about blasphemy. He thought the Jews were superstitious anyway. He could care less. That's why when they show up, they say, um, you know, he's been guilty of a capital crime. What is it? Blasphemy. Take care of it. Do it yourself. See to it yourselves. Basically, he's saying, we're going to turn a blind eye to this, handle this amongst yourself. But they didn't want to take the blame because they knew if they did, the people would revolt. So what do they say? Oh, we don't have we don't have the ability to institute a capital crime. Rome says we can't. Sorry. So they're they're hiding under the law that they hated. And then they slant the story. They slant the story. Notice what Pilate says. Verse 2, what's the question that he asked him? Are you the what? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, we don't have them telling Pilate he's the king of the Jews. I mean, we don't see that. We have to read between the lines. See, that's what they did because that would be a threat to Pilate. For him to not put down a possible usurper to the, to the Roman crown would have been ultimate insurrection. He would have been in serious trouble overlooking. That would, it's under his area of oversight. So now Jesus becomes a threat to them. And that's because they slanted the story. Have you ever done that with someone on the phone? They're talking to a family friend and there's someone that's hurt you really bad. And you try to make them look as bad as possible and get that person to agree with you. And they go, yeah, you're right, honey. It's really bad. Yeah, you're, yeah, it is. Uh, They're horrible to me. But you intentionally overlook all the stuff that you did. You ever done that? I've done that. We know how to slant the story and turn it in our favor. We're experts at it. See, that's what the, that's what the, 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 the jealous did. They slanted the story. They overlooked ob- objectivity. They were willing to, to trade truth for a terror. We have to see that each one of us in some way are complicit within the trial of Jesus Christ. See, we have to realize our part in this story that each one of us has a part to play. We have to admit our guilt. That's number two in your notes. Write that down. Admit our guilt. Take responsibility for our actions. We have to take responsibility. It's just like with my, with my kids. I don't know if you've ever had this with your kids. or You know, if my kid comes up to me and I know that they did it and then they don't take responsibility for it, then I get twice as mad. Especially if I saw them do it. I didn't do it. Oh, I saw you do it. You know, it's like when I was a kid, I remember doing some stuff out in my house. Uh, I was climbing a tree when I was 10. My mom didn't like me climbing trees, and I climbed the tree, and then I fell out of the tree. And as I come home, I, I come under the house, and I'm sore, and I'm shaking it off, and my mom goes, you were climbing the tree. I'm like, how did you see that? I didn't, but the neighbor did, and she called <laughs> to let me know that you were in the tree. See, and I, because I, I, God sees all the things that we do. We can't get away with it. Sometimes we get trapped in our sin. Like when I was, for instance, I got trapped, and, and we, what do we do when we're trapped? We get caught in it. When I was in kindergarten, we had a TV antenna behind our house. I thought it would be fun as a kindergartner to climb it. 
So I got on top of my house, and then I couldn't figure out how to get down. <laughs> See, that's what happens. Sometimes we go, we want to scale the heights of sin, and then we're trapped and isolated because we can't figure out how to get out of it. And that's what's going on with these guys. These guys are boxing themselves in. They're painting themselves into a proverbial corner, not realizing that they are getting ready to kill the Lord of glory. And many of us, by our sin, by our rebellion, that's exactly what we have done. We have to admit our guilt. And how does it, what does that mean, to admit our guilt? First of all, we, re, we must realize that we can't erase the evidence. We can't erase the evidence. You know, we've all seen the crime dramas on television or a good mystery show. We've seen them in the courtrooms, and there always becomes a moment where the lawyer pulls a real fast one, and the, the evidence is inadmissible, or they find some loophole. You know what? You can't erase the evidence, and it's not inadmissible in the court of God. God is the completely objective, fair judge. The evidence of Christ is staying until the end of time, even past that. Just as even Jesus said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. The sun, moon, and the stars, the different planets within the solar system can burn out, but God's word will endure past the end of time. God has made it that way. And the evidence of Christ and what He has done will be on display for all eternity. For some, it will be an opportunity of rapturous joy. For others, it will be the evidence of horrid condemnation and terror to their souls. As each person, after they die, they stand before the judgment seat of God, faced with the evidence, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do? Did you believe Him or did you reject Him? The evidence is clear. I disagree with Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher atheist, who, when they asked about Christianity, and they said, if you stand before the judgment seat of God, what are you going to say? He said, not enough evidence. There's more evidence for the crucifixion, life, death, and Christ more than any other historical figure in history. Did you know that? For all the ancient books and manuscripts that are out there, there is more, and it doesn't even compare the evidence for Christ is staggering for who he is. And even if you, you rejected the scripture, let's say you were talking with someone that rejected scripture, there is even not enough within secular historians to prove of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Tacitus, Suetonius, these are individuals, their names have recorded who Jesus is. Josephus, names like that. See, we have to make sure that we are admitting our guilt, that we can't erase the evidence, and we can't remove our responsibility. We can't remove our responsibility. We can't erase it. We can't shirk from it. We can't run from it. As, as David even wrote within the psalmist, if I go to the highest heavens, God, you are there. If I go and make my, my bed in the depths of Sheol, you are there. Where can I go to flee from your presence? You are everywhere. Do you know that? God is everywhere. He is here now. Wherever two or three are gathered, here he is in the midst of them. He is even manifestly present. Even angels are, are beholding the service right now. Can you imagine that? That's what the scripture says. When the word of God is being proclaimed, it is a fascinating and terrifying, terrifying thing. We can't remove our responsibility. We can't extricate ourselves from it. We have to claim our responsibility in the death of Christ. By my rebellion, I participated within the crucifixion of Christ. So we can't remove our responsibility. We can't erase the evidence. And, and we can't change our culpability. 
We can't change our culpability. Let her see in your notes there. We cannot change our culpability. Each one of us has to come to the cross the same way. And that is humbly and repentance. You can't come in any other way except through Jesus. Did you know that? No one comes to the Father, as Jesus said, except through me. There's not many ways to God. There's not just the, you know, it's interesting. I've, I don't know if you've ever argued with an atheist before, and they've ever used the elephant and the three blind men illustration. It's a pretty interesting illustration. They talk about this, this elephant. And they say that there are three blind men. One blind man is stroking the trunk. The other man, blind man is feeling the sides. And the third blind man is feeling the tail. And atheists use this to say, oh, all of these are just different, different religious groups and they're all talking about the same God, just in different ways. <laughs> and some of us hear that story and we go, hmm. But see, it's a, it's a fallacy. You know why? Because someone sees the three blind men. Someone sees the three blind men that are describing it. See, there's only one true God. One. There is no other. There are not many different ways to God. It's not your morality that gets you to God because none of us will ever be good enough in the sight of God to get there by our deeds. It is through faith and trusting in the, the gift that God has given. So we have, to, we have to understand and admit our guilt that we, in some way, were responsible. That's why the Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, it's pretty interesting there. Within the, the Greek construction of that sentence, for all have sinned, it actually points back to a moment in time like a stone, throwing it into a pond and it has ripple effects. We all sinned in Adam. But someone says, well, how can I be blamed for what I inherited? Well, that's the second part of the sentence. For all have sinned and, present tense, fall short of the glory of God. So each one of us, by our sins, by our rebellion, have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you realize that? You were just like Mel Gibson. You were the one that had the hand, your hand on the nail, nailing it in. Every sin, every, even every small sin in your mind, was enough to crucify the Lord of glory. So how should we respond to this? We know that we can't, we can't shirk the blame onto someone else. We have to take responsibility for our actions. We have to admit our guilt. Then what do we do after all of that to realize that Jesus paid that price for us? What do we do? How do we respond? I mean, if, if you say, I believe that Jesus died for me. I, I, I believe that he gave his life for me and that he willingly went under all of that torture for me, that he was willing to be spit on and to have this crown of thorns shoved on his head and on his scalp and to have them beat him with rods like a stick. You ever been beaten with a rod or a switch? When you were a kid, did you ever get beat with a switch? It's a stick. Some people are raising their hand. I mean, it's, not a, pain, it's a painful process, and I can't imagine a rod. I mean, I think of, uh, so some of you know Tim Bedall. He's the teaching pastor at the other campus. His father, when he was a kid, his father uh, grew up in Iraq. And like many young men, when the, not that this was the best thing in the world, but he would do something bad, what would his mother say to him? Wait until your father gets home. Right. And then you know what he had to do? He had to go outside to the tree 
and get his own switch. And if you didn't get a good enough switch, what happened? Then the parent would get a bigger switch, <laughs> right? And this Bill Bidal is his name. Bill knew that, so his father, his mother told him that. His mother went off to run errands, said, wait till your father gets home. Do you know what this guy did? He burnt down the tree. <laughs> burnt down the tree. That's a smart young man. Kids, don't ever burn down trees, Okay? That's exactly what he did. He tried to get rid of it and remove the, even the penalty of it. We can't remove the penalty. We can't take it away. We can't shirk away from it. We can't burn the cross down. It's a stumbling block to many different people. But it's through the cross. Each one of us come to know who truly who Jesus is. So how do we respond? How do we, how do we get beyond this blame game? I mean, we realize that we have to understand how we played our part. We have to admit our guilt which I think many in this room realize that we're all guilty. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And it involves repenting and turning back to Him and then expressing our gratitude. Cultivating an attitude of gratitude. Thanking Jesus for what He has done for you. I think that's what we we miss sometimes. We fail to comprehend. I mean, we get bored sometimes of who God is. And that's a sin. Because God is not boring. You are boring. God is never boring. When preachers make God boring, I think they're sinning. Because this is a word of God. It is alive, living and active, sharper than any, than any, than any I mean, separating soul and spirit. It convicts us, it cuts us, and it shows who God is. God and all of his majesty. Yesterday, when we were at the leadership summit, we took a few moments to just pray and adore God. And this is what, an action that I think you should do. If you ever get a chance to do this sometime, do it. Go through the alphabet and find different, go through the different letters of the alphabet describing who God is. Say, God, you are awesome. God, you are, you are beautiful. God, you are compassionate. I mean, think of all of the the different letters. Go through it. It's a challenge. I trust me. Especially when you get into X and Q. God is excellent. Just use the X. (laughs) Okay? But find and and contemplate who God is. Because the reason many of us struggle so often is we, we have a very small vision of who God is. We need to stop and marvel at Him all over again. Rediscover who God is and what He has done and how holy He is. Turn to the book of Revelation sometime in chapter 4 and step into the, whole, the, the throne room of God when the angels are circling the throne of God and they have, they're flying with two wings and two wings are covering their eyes and two wings are covering their feet and they're surrounding the throne of God day and night saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Step into that throne room, look into the book of Isaiah chapter 6 and and see how he beholds God high and lifted up. Or look at the book of Ezekiel, look at all of these different pictures of who God is and what he has done. Look in the book of Exodus and see how God led the Israelites out of Egypt and all the plagues that he wrought and how he opened up the Red Sea. I mean, I can't imagine being an Israelite walking through the, the dry ground of the Red Sea. Have you ever tried to imagine that for yourself? I would be pretty freaked out. I would be like, it's going to fall. <laughs> That's a whale. <laughs> I mean, it, we need to comprehend how great and how majestic God is. God is there and he's not silent. 
And for many of us, the truth of J.B. Phillips' book is very true. He said, and he titled his book, Your God is Too Small. God is much bigger than we could ever imagine. So we have to understand, we have to express our gratitude, and we do this in three ways. We need to praise God for his perfect plan. Praise God for his perfect plan. It was a perfect plan. Do you know, that's what we see in Isaiah chapter 53. It was the will of God to crush him. It was the will of God that he should be made a mockery and just. That's how far God was willing to go to show his love for us, that he would be humiliated for us, that he would go through this ignominious death as we went to the cross. It was God's will to do it. We need to to marvel at that, at his perfect plan. I'm you know, I grew up in the 80s. I wa- How many of you watched the A-Team? You ever watch the A-Team? Okay. My, one of my favorite parts of the A-Team was when Hannibal, at the end of, at the end of, his, uh, at the end of, one of each of the shows, he'd put a big fat cigar in his mouth and he'd say, I love it when a plan comes together. Sometimes you've got to wonder, is God going, I love it when the plan comes together? That it all came together. Pilate, the priests, you got the the jealous, the jury, the jokers, the judge, it's all coming together for God's perfect plan to bring about the redemption of man. So we have to, to see that, to see it all over again, to see that perfect plan, to praise Him for that perfect plan, and to, to marvel at His loving Lordship. Marvel at His loving Lordship. How do we marvel at His loving Lordship? That's that letter B under number three. Marvel at his loving lordship, that God would willing to do that. Why? Because God loved us so much. Love is measured by what it gives. And he was willing to give himself completely for you and for me. We need to marvel at that loving lordship, to behold it all again, that God would do that, that the king would do that, that king would lock arms with traitors in order to bring us to himself. And then lastly, we need to stand in awe at his suffering for our sins. Stand in awe at his suffering for our sins. Years ago, I wrote a play, right when I came to know Jesus. Um, And in the play, I I had it performed just one time. And it was an, an image in my mind of what Jesus had done. And the first act is of this young man coming to know who Jesus is. It was my story. How he came to know Jesus, and the, and the audience is brought in to see how this young man, man was living in rebellion and came to know Jesus. And as, as the story plays out, um, you see just as his struggle, he's trying to grow, but he's dealing with the sin in his life. And to even set the stage a little bit, the first whole part of the play when it starts, it has Jesus walk in getting beaten. And he goes up behind the stage, and there's a big white sheet. And we, we hear him periodically throughout the play. And after the young man came to know Jesus, you see him being brought back in temptation coming into his life and him giving in to sin. And three times in the second act, he gives in to sin. And each time when he sins, the whole, all the lights cut to dark on the stage and behind a light shows and it shows Christ getting the nail put into his hand. You just see the imagery and you hear him screaming. The second sin, you see the second hand. And in the third scene, you see his feet. And you see this young man broken, realizing that it was his sins for which Christ was crucified. And the third act has the young man falling on his knees, repentant, and then the light goes to dark. That's the ending of the play. And then you see a light on beh- behind again. You see the sheet, and all behind it, all you see is the cross with Christ off. 
Why? Because he paid for the sin, paid for our sins. And we are freed from that. Did you know that's what Jesus did? When he suffered for your sins, he took the penalty that was required for you for him, on himself. Do you realize that? He took the penalty for your sins, and he also broke the power of sin over your life. You don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to give in to it anymore. When sin comes knocking at your door, you don't have to open it. You have the full right to keep it closed. You don't have to do it. Now, we're going to struggle. Just as David mentioned before, the reason we have to be filled with the Spirit all the time. Why? Because we have a leak. We have to be filled every day. It's just like you ever go to Trader Joe's and I have small kids and they give you the kids balloons and the next day what happens to the balloon? It's gone down. See, but God has made it for our balloon that we can be filled up every day. Every time we sink, we can be filled back up. That's what we need to do. We need to stand in awe at his suffering for our sins. We need to marvel at him, behold him all again. For many here, that means coming to know Jesus for the first time. Maybe you're here today and you've not invited Jesus or received him as Savior of your life. It's simple as repenting and believing in him. And he, you do an about face. I mean, it's simple, but it's also hard. It's simple in, to describe it, but it's hard to do. Because many of us want to hold on to our sin. And we want to hold on to ourself and our own job security and things of this world, just like Pilate was trying to hold on to all these things. We have to turn and lay that at God's feet in order to lay it at God's feet. We take it, lay our sins down at his feet. Say, I'm not going to embrace that life anymore. I'm going to embrace you as the Lord of glory. So it's repenting and believing. And for some of us, maybe we've gotten cold. We've forsaken our first love. Then repent. Ask God to place a fire within you, and he will. Rediscover him for who he is all over again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything that you have done for us and through us and in us. Lord, we thank you that you took the blame upon yourself. Lord, help us to understand that we are guilty in your sight. And Lord, you took all of our, the penalty, everything that we required. You were willingly suffered for our sins. You became our substitute. Lord, we admit that we are guilty. We take the blame in realizing that we in some way helped crucify you. We know it was the will of God to crush the Son of God for us. Lord, we stand and marvel at that. And we behold you and we ask that you renew our hearts. Lord, if there's someone here who hasn't embraced you, I pray that they truly repent and believe and place their trust in you. And for those that are living in sin and they know that they're struggling with it day in and day out, I pray, Lord, that you show yourself to be the sovereign provider, that you severed that those shackles of sin upon their life, that they can walk in newness of life and freedom with you. So, Lord, please glorify yourself in our midst as we each go our separate ways today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.